We are continuing our verse-by-verse study in the book of 1 Peter. If you need to know where Peter is located, go to the end of your Bible, put it in reverse, and you'll quickly find it. The first time we find Peter in the Scripture, he's pulling a fishing net. He's exhausted. The sun is relentless, but the fish must be counted and flayed. He was in the fishing business. Jesus walked by on the bank and revealed himself to Peter and said, Follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. Peter left everything and followed Christ. Three years later, Peter is still following Christ. This time, into a garden. Jesus was praying in the garden and a band of men come to arrest him. Men were yelling, tempers were flaring, everything escalated quickly. In the scuffle, the authorities grabbed Jesus by force, roughed him up, pushed him around. They mistreated him. Peter had enough. He pulled out his sword that he carried for protection, and he took one long, deep swing. Peter was an all-or-nothing kind of guy. He aimed for the head. He intended to cut the man in half. Maybe he was bumped. Maybe the man moved last minute. Maybe Peter shouldn't have been given that concealed carry permit for the sword. I I don't know. But he missed. Sort of. He ended up severing the man's ear. Peter went from flaying fish to flaying ears. That's what you call progress and sanctification. (laughs) Jesus reminded Peter, this is not how Christians deal with mistreatment. This is not how Christians resist. When you pulled the sword, it didn't glorify me. Now let's fast forward 20 or more years. This is 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is no longer pulling a net in exhaustion or swinging a sword in anger. Now he's holding a hand in empathy. Just because Peter was a man's man doesn't mean he couldn't be gentle. He's developed a pastor's heart. Through the letter, it's like he's holding the hand of a a mistreated Christian. And he's empathizing with him. Pastoring him. Loving him. Counseling him. Peter knew one of the most difficult things you will face in this life is dealing with those who mistreat you. When you're dealing with mistreatment, you need gospel counseling. You might be surprised to learn that Peter doesn't recommend de-earing people who mistreat you. He doesn't recommend slicing them into two equal portions. That was young in the faith, Peter. Now he's 23 years or more running this faith race and he's matured. He's been growing in sanctification. By the way, he's the human author, but God is the divine author. So Peter's advice to you is God's command for you. Here's how the text is broken down. We find first a mistreated Christian And then a mistreated Christ. Notice verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. 
Whenever we find the word servant in the Bible, we know it should be translated slave. Typically, it's the word doulos. However, this Greek word translated servant in the ESV is not doulos. It's oiketes. It's only used three times in the New Testament. It still means slave. It's just a less common word for slave. And it simply goes into a little more detail than doulos. This word speaks of a household slave. Household slaves fared better than field slaves. These slaves aren't sweating in the fields. They are sweeping in the mansions. One author said you might want to think of them as the household staff of of Downton Abbey where they do all the work and the family of the house spends all day drinking and changing clothes. Uh, This was the life of Joseph at one time in his journey. He was still a slave, but he had better treatment and better working conditions than the average doulos slave. Just like Joseph, but unlike the butler at Downton Abbey, the slaves in our text had no legal standing. Their world could change at the whim of a master. Now we must ask the question, why is Peter counseling a bunch of church people about mistreatment and using the category of slavery? He could have given a hundred other categories or spaces where people are mistreated, but he chooses the most severe. Why? Well, there are two reasons. One, slaves are to function as an example for all the Christians in the church. How a slave responds to mistreatment is how you should respond to mistreatment. Peter uses the weakest members of society to represent everyone in the church. Secondly, there were 60 million people living in the Roman Empire. And half of them were slaves. 60 million people, that's more than are currently living in South Korea or South Africa. Can you imagine half of those countries consisting of people in slavery? If half the empire was in slavery, it's no stretch to say that half of the people in the churches Peter is addressing were slaves. Slavery was the common day work environment for half of the people to whom Peter is writing. As the gospel spread throughout the Greco-Roman world, many of the converts were slaves. That's where there's so much talk of slaves in the Bible because they made up a large part of the church. Wayne Grudem says that the slave-master relationship was by far the most common kind of employee-employer relationship in the ancient world. What type of work did slaves do? By implication, what type of work did half of the people in these churches do? Well, there was a a lower-level slavery, a mid-level slavery, and a high-level slavery. Lower-level slavery, they worked in the fields, worked in the salt mines. They were ditch diggers. They were ship builders. Then there's mid-level slavery. They were cooks, house staff, secretaries, teachers, tutors, librarians. Then there was high-level slavery. Those were managers, overseers, musicians, artisans, accountants, actors. These were your equivalent of distinguished PhDs, extremely skilled. If you had a surgery in first century Rome, it would have likely been performed by a slave because they were also doctors. Now let's answer a few questions. 
First, where might mistreatment come from? I usually don't like to end sentences and prepositions. I get on my children about that all the time. But um, as these other points come, you'll see that it flowed better. So I'm willing to compromise for the flow. Uh, where might mistreatment come from? Notice verse 18. Servants be subject. Uh, that word be subject, that's, that's hupotasso, the same word from last week. Last week, submit to your government. This week, submit to your master, your employer. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. That means don't kick the dirt and submit. Don't complain and submit. Submit with gladness, with gracious honor. If they want a straight ditch, don't dig a crooked ditch. If, if they say they want a house dusted twice a day, don't grumble that it's no point in doing it tw two times a day. Pick up the feather duster. If they want to see clean accounting books, show them clean accounting books with a smile. Verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, good and gentle, how many of you have ever had a boss or superior like this? He's good and gentle. You just loved working for them. A anyone? Some of, some of you have worked for me and you're not raising your hand, so that's concerning. I don't know, I don't know what that says about me. Uh, it's easy to submit to good and gentle masters. The pleasant and adored employer. But what about this? Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. The last word of verse 18, unjust, could be translated crooked. The Greek word is, the Greek root word is scolios, where we get our word scoliosis. You've seen a crooked spine? Well, this boss is crooked. He cheats. He skims. He's dishonest. He's inconsistent regarding expectations. His thinking patterns are skewed. His working conditions are bent. His pay is crooked. He's hard to deal with. He's unpleasant. He's unjust. Did I just describe your master, your superior, your boss? For the original readers, there were no labor laws to abide by or HR to complain to about workplace harassment or hostile work environment. No unions, nowhere to express their grievances. They couldn't picket to exert their rights. What do you do when you're a Christian, but your superior is mean, unpleasant, treats you poorly? There's low-key bullying. There's a, a toxic relationship. What do you do when bosses or superiors or masters or anyone for that matter mistreats you? Where might mistreatment come from? Superiors. Secondly, what might mistreatment look like? What did it look like for them? And then what might it look like for you? Mistreatment in the first century and then mistreatment in the 21st century. Some of the masters in the text grew to resent the newfound faith of their slaves. Verse 20 says they were beaten. Uh, you're likely at your job not going to be beaten, but possibly degraded, gossiped about, scorned, 
have unreasonable expectations placed upon you. Verse 19, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Endures sorrows. Peter speaks of mental anguish that the unjust employer causes you. Forced to work long hours. Punished in a variety of ways. You face undue bitterness, anger, slander. You will deal with bosses, contractors, vendors, investors, distributors, corporates. And it will feel like they got the best of you. They mistreated you. So what do you do then? The third question, how can you redeem mistreatment in your psyche? How can you redeem mistreatment in your psyche? Peter did not tell these low-level slaves, mid-level slaves, high-level slaves to start a rebellion, protest, lead a mutiny, go on strike. He didn't tell them any of that, so I'm not going to tell you to do that. What did he tell them verse 19? For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. When you humbly and patiently accept unjust treatment, it's a gracious event. And God doesn't throw around the word gracious lightly. When you're treated badly for no good reason, it's enhancing, it's beautiful, it's adorning. But you must do it, what's the verse say? Mindful of God. You endure knowing that God is in sovereign control and promises to bless you for going through it. And you say, Kyle, wait, wait a minute, back up the boat. Where does it say I will be blessed for facing mistreatment? Well, verse 20. For what, underline this word, for what credit is it? What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The word credit speaks of a reward. Whenever you encounter trials of mistreatment, you should view them as opportunities to gain spiritual rewards. Spiritual, as the text says, credit. What do you do when, you've, when you have a sense that you've been wronged? Complain? Do you gossip? Become defeated? Seethe with bitterness? Pull out your sword and try to slice someone in half. Don't do these things. Vengeance, rebellion, physical assault, verbal assault. At work, don't be a tiger. Be a lamb. Don't have a hitman mentality. You cross me, I'll kill your entire family. <laughs> don't have a mafia mentality. You take a flower from my yard, I'll burn your entire field. Peter says, no hurt back. This is not merely a rule to be followed. It's a miracle to be experienced. A grace to be received. A promise to be believed. Your silence and a barrage of criticism is working for you. Rewards in heaven. Notice verse 21. For to this you have been called. 
This is not new. We are called as Christians to mistreatment. We are called to labor under unjust masters. The Latin, the Latin for called here is, is vaco, where we get our English word vocation. Your vocation is to live under unjust masters and gain rewards for eternity. A low-level slave might say, my vocation is shipbuilding. A mid-level slave might say, my vocation is a cook. A high-level slave might say, my vocation is a manager. No, your vocation is to serve under mistreatment. Suffering becomes bearable when we understand that we are in that state by the providence of God. And it's causing us to gain heavenly rewards. Teach your children this. And it will be better for them than a million dollar inheritance. Submit to the coach who benches you. Submit to the play director who doesn't let you play Juliet. Demonstrate submission for the glory of God. Respectful submission on the basketball court, in the classroom, in that car garage, in that boardroom. When experiencing mistreatment, your soul may cry, God, are you seeing this right now? Absolutely. You need to hear the Father saying to you, the way you handled that personal attack glorified me. The way you responded to that hateful comment glorified me. The way you submitted to that unjust master brought glory to me. Last week when you pulled out the sword, that didn't glorify me. But this week when you submitted, that heaped praise on my name and worked eternal rewards for you. God has a way he wants you to respond to unjust masters. He has a way he wants you to endure mistreatment. Christian, you who are being mistreated at your job or anywhere else, this is not meant for your destruction. It is meant for your sanctification. Now, this is principally clear, but applicably difficult. I can't work out every single scenario for you, but I can give you plainly what's revealed in Scripture. And it's this. You are never more like Christ than when you endure mistreatment. You may never get a better boss, but at your job, you're not just working for a temporary paycheck. You're working for eternal rewards. Now, I know this biblical concept that I'm giving you is so anti-American culture. Peter's whole book has been anti-American culture. Each Monday, I prep for the next week, and I'm going through reading like, are you kidding me, Peter? We're on this topic? Peter never throws softballs, ever. You know what next week is? Wives, submit to your husbands. Come back. It's going to be fun. I'm just like, just give me one underhand pitch, Peter. Just something easy to hit. No. Slaves, submit to your masters. The, the whole concept of work in our culture is that work is a place, this is important, is that work concept in our culture. Work is a place where we flourish, where we find contentment, where we develop our gifts so that we flourish as an individual. 
But Peter doesn't see our work as a place of personal fulfillment. He sees it as a place God has assigned and you submit to that unpleasant master. The only way the New Testament talks about enjoying your job is when you see beyond the unjust earthly master and see that you're actually working that job for your just heavenly master. Also, I I need to add that Peter recognizes a certain category of people. If you're a Christian and your supervisor is constantly getting on you about the lack of quality in your work or being late or having an unprofessional attitude or appearance, that is not unjust suffering. That your mama didn't spank you enough when you were a child and let you claim the victim mentality your whole life. Now, a few applications before I move on to a mistreated Christ. The first application is for employees. There are times when you do not submit. Some of this goes without saying, but there are times when you do not submit. If your boss asks you to do something that is unlawful or unbiblical, do not submit and honestly, church, even, even when I was writing this this week, I can't help but to think about the severely abused hearing this passage. And my fear would be them hearing it and thinking, well, I must stay in this abusive work environment because God commanded it. And, and, and my pastor's heart just forces me to address this. Dear lady, if someone is making inappropriate advances, you do not submit. You report, report, report. Sir, if something criminal is going on, you do not submit. Report, report, report. It's application for employees. Application next for employers. Some of you own businesses. Many of you own businesses. Be a good and gentle master. Are you a good and gentle employer or a cruel and unjust employer? Care for your employees more than you care for a profit. Create a healthy environment in which your employees can labor. Have realistic expectations for them. And by the way, don't don't use this passage to get your employees to submit to you. You don't wield this passage like a tool in your hand to increase productivity. Another application. Application for the still not satisfied. Which I'm guessing is about 80% of you. Kyle, aren't you oversimplifying this passage? Possibly. I've heard pastors preach this text usually going to one of two extremes. They say these slaves were the equivalent of our modern day employment system. And then they say nothing else about the complexity of the slave situation. I think this view falls a bit flat. The other group says that this was abusive prison-like slavery that kept people locked up in the basement. They were all mistreated. They were all beaten. They were all abused. That view doesn't seem to do justice to the Roman slave system either. My position is that there is no exact parallel to the Roman slave status in our modern society. 
employer, employee application is right and fitting from this passage. But the main point is how to deal with mistreatment no matter where it comes from. And some of you have been wincing every time I mention the word slave. Just think about what it said. Slaves. Submit to your masters with all respect, not only to the nice and gentle masters, but also to the cruel and hateful masters. Does that not jolt your sensibilities? Some of you today, for the first time, have encountered slavery in the Bible, and it bothers you. Is Peter condoning slavery by telling slaves to submit to their masters? You hear the word slave and think of North American slavery. And then you bring that baggage to the text. But America hasn't always been around. You don't need to read everything through American glasses. You need to allow for complexity in the word slave. And I'm hoping to helpfully complicate it for you. I brought all of you a gift today for Father's Day. It's a chart. There's a difference between Roman slavery and U.S. slavery. One was in the first century, the other was in the 18th and 19th century. Greco-Roman slavery was not the same type of slavery practice in America's antebellum era. Let's just walk through this. Who were the slaves in the first century? Well, it was those in debt bondage. There was no such thing as bankruptcy in ancient times, so they became indentured slaves. This was not lifelong. It was until the debt was paid off. Um, a modern-day parallel might be someone who received their college education for free in exchange for four years in the army. That's making sense to a lot of you now. Like, yes, it is slavery. It is slavery. All right, so um, those in debt bondage. Secondly, those who, desired those who desired voluntary bondage. They could not provide for themselves, so they sold themselves into slavery so they could eat. In short, almost all jobs could be and were fulfilled by slaves. In Paul's day, slavery had virtually eclipsed free labor. 50% of the Roman Empire were slaves. In comparison, 10 to 15% at the end of the Civil War were slaves. This part of the slave population was closer to our modern system of, of employment than the slavery once practiced in the United States. And thirdly, it's those in military bondage. When the Romans conquered a city or country, their POWs could be slaughtered, or become slaves. So that's who slaves were in the Roman system. Let's see who slaves were in the 18th and 19th century. They were simply kidnapped Africans. All dark skin, no light skin. It was race-based slavery. It was ethnocentric. This was not the case in Roman slavery. It was cross-class. It was cross-race. They came from all types of races and groups. There were African slaves, but there were also lots of British slaves and Italian slaves. Not called Italian then, of course, but Italian slaves. Roman slavery was not race-based. And this particular slavery in the U.S. was lifelong. 
It was permanent. Let's look at the freedoms. The freedom during Roman slavery. Most were allowed to marry. Some masters and slaves became very close friends. The Roman Senate in AD 20 granted slaves accused of crimes a right to a trial. All the slaves didn't, didn't look alike or talk alike or dress alike. They were each very distinct. They were, they were fully educated. It would not be unusual for a slave to be better educated than his master. Slaves could own slaves. Slaves could own property. They could purchase their freedom through manumission. Now, U.S. slavery, what were the freedoms? Nothing. Nothing to speak of. Children produced in slavery belonged to the master. And they could leave slaves in the will like they were cattle or a house. They also discouraged education. American slave owners didn't want it. So let's summarize here. One group tries to make all ancient slavery sound like it was horrible. And another group tries to make all ancient slavery sound like it's our modern day employment. And both are too simplistic. For instance, notice on the chart, group one, those in debt bondage. Some lived normal lives and were paid the going wage, but were not allowed to quit or change employers and were in slavery an average of 10 years. There was extensive Roman legislation reg regulating the treatment of slaves. Now, despite that, some slaves were beaten and physically abused. It's group one. Group two, legal freedom was by no means a positive for group two. Personal freedom was not esteemed as highly back then as it is in our modern West. Peter is probably writing to people in group one and group two. Let's talk about group three, those in military bondage. This was very harsh and the treatment was brutal. Despite claims of some New Testament scholars, not all ancient slavery was more humane than modern slavery. And this group would be an example. It does raise the question, why isn't Peter picketing against slavery in this book? Why is he commanding slaves to submit? I mean, this must mean he supports it. Some of you aren't Christians. And you're not Christians because you assume that the Bible endorses slavery. And if it's wrong on slavery, it's going to be wrong in other areas as well. And I agree with you. I just don't agree that the Bible endorses slavery. And you, you clap back and you list these verses. Well, Ephesians 6, 5, slaves obey your earthly masters. Colossians 3, 22, slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And I say the New Testament does not approve of slavery, but it does recognize it. In the complex social environment of the ancient Roman Empire, slavery was not going to be abolished anytime soon. It was a reality people lived with. Peter is addressing his readers where they are. So we have encouragement about how to live in it. Now allow me to make my case. First, consider culture. Thomas Sowell, the American economist and, and social theorist, he was born in the great state of North Carolina, he served as a Marine during the Korean War. 
In his book, Race and Culture, he points out that every major world culture until the modern period, without exception, has had slavery. No one in ancient times could conceive of an economic or labor structure without it. N.T. Wright gave a, a terrible illustration. It's so terrible that it sticks. He says, telling someone in the Roman Empire to stop using slaves would be like telling us to stop using cars. Now, he respects the Imago Dei. He's not saying slaves and cars are the same. He's pointing out how scandalous it would be for us to continue our economic structure without cars. Why isn't Peter advocating for the overthrow of Roman slavery? Well, it was completely unrealistic for these fledgling New Testament churches in the Roman Empire. New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner says, railing against slavery would not be of any help to ordinary Christians, for the dissolution of slavery was out of question. Consider culture, and then consider Scripture. Exodus 21.16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That verse itself condemns the whole slavery of the 18th and 19th century. Colonial American slavery rested on kidnapping. It was man-stealing. And the Bible is clear on North American slavery. It is against it. It is against man-stealing. It abhors it. It is sin. It is reprehensible. God made it clear that the buying and selling of kidnapped or abducted human beings was an evil deserving of capital punishment. If an atheist or professor tells you that the Bible justifies slavery, keep in mind that the slavery in first century Rome was very different than slavery in the 18th century. Slaves were not bought and sold against their will. They were not kidnapped by their own countrymen and then sold to other nations. Peter is not endorsing or blessing slavery as an institution. Consider culture, consider scripture. Thirdly, consider Paul. Not Peter, but Paul. He wrote a lot of your New Testament. Paul exhorted slaves to seek liberty when they could. 1 Corinthians 7.21 if you have the opportunity to seek liberty, you go. God grants us freedom to escape oppression if we can. Jesus even told his disciples in Matthew 10, 23, when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Tim Keller says Paul's letters do not aim at abolishing slavery but rather aim to transform the ancient institution from the inside. Scholar F.F. F. Bruce says, what Paul's, letter do, what Paul's letters do is to bring us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could wilt and die. John Murray said, all the seeds for the dissolution of slavery were sown in the New Testament. Only within Christianity did the idea eventually arise that slavery was an abominable institution to be abolished. Why? Largely because of the implication of the gospel laid out by Peter and Paul. 
Christianity gave the world the idea that slavery was wrong. Rather than issuing a political manifesto, God planted seeds which undid the current order. Fourthly, consider progressive revelation. Progressive revelation simply means that God didn't reveal his will and character to humanity all at once, but gradually over a long period of time. Thus, you have to look at the entire narrative of biblical revelation to interpret it fairly, rather than just pull a verse from here or there. Interpreting the Bible rightly is not, for the most part, a difficult process if we keep a few principles in mind. And among the most important of these is that God does not automatically endorse a practice just because it is described and regulated in his word. The New Testament nowhere affirms slavery. It merely regulates an existing societal structure. But to be clear, slavery in any sense perverts God's created intention for human beings. God never instituted the institution of slavery. Now he did with marriage. Marriage is God's institution. Slavery is man's institution. Fifthly, consider who stopped slavery in the States. It's worth asking the question that, that Thomas Sowell, remember that economist from the promised land, posed. He said, how did slavery stop? And he points out that the driving impetus for the abolition of slavery was the evangelical awakening in England. Christians rammed abolition through Parliament in the beginning of the 19th century and then eventually used British gunboats to stop the slave trade across the Atlantic. The gospel planted seeds that ultimately undid the broken systems of slavery from within. And here's just an interesting historical nugget. The, the terrible European slave trade trafficked 11 million Africans. But twice as many were bought and sold on the Arabian Peninsula during the same time period. Yet you have this enormous amount of guilt and shame literature coming out of the West, but none out of Arabia. Why? The awakening. Christianity. A mistreated Christian. Now let's go to the toughest part of this passage to endure. And that is a mistreated Christ. Verse 21. For to this you have been called. Why have you been called to mistreatment? Because Christ also suffered for you. Church, you can endure all types of mistreatments holding on to this truth. Christ was mistreated for you. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. <laughs> From kindergarten to finishing my doctoral degree, my least favorite part of schooling was tracing letters. I dreaded that activity. I, I, I don't know why, I just couldn't stand following the example. The broken S is already there. Why would I trace it? I still think it's a horrible teaching technique. Until this week. When I read this phrase, leaving you an example to follow. And then I'm like, well, let me read that in the Greek. The word example 
Hupag Ramas is used of children who trace over the letters of the alphabet in order to learn how to write letters correctly. <laughs> the exact same activity that I hated during in elementary school. Peter says, do you remember how you learned to write? Tracing those broken S's? Well, Jesus shows you how to react by tracing his steps. Copy him. Trace the alphabet of his disposition and demeanor. Jesus is our pattern. We trace our lives after him. We look at how he handled mistreatment and we handle mistreatment that way. I want you to see that Christ is our sufferer. Notice verse 22. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was reviled. The verbal abuse hurled at Christ was second to none. Jesus experienced abusive speech. They called him an illegitimate child born out of wedlock, John 8. They called him a glutton, Matthew 11. They called him a drunkard, Luke 7. They said he was possessed with demons, John 8. They said he was in a secret alliance with Satan, Mark 3. They called him a deceiver, a tax evader, and a false teacher, Luke 23. The revilings of Christ were especially intense during his trial and crucifixion. Reviling. And that is when they cut him with their words. Stabbed him with their words. Abusively insulted him. Jesus never reviled back. He never indulged in retaliation. He, he did not even, not even mental. He did not indulge in hard thoughts against those who injured him. How could he endure such mistreatment? And how can you, by his example, endure your mistreatment? Well, the text tells us plainly, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He knew that God would judge rightly on the last day, both vindicating him and punishing his enemies if they refused to repent. We do not have to take judgment in our hands. We leave it in God's. It's the imperfect tense here implying that he repeatedly kept entrusting, repeatedly kept handing over his mistreatment to the perfect master. Dear church, deeply trust God when you are mistreated. Christ is our sufferer. Christ is our substitute. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, 
you have been healed. In verse 24, Peter traces Jesus' steps through the words of Isaiah. Peter quotes Isaiah a lot throughout the book, so much so that I can't even point it out to you each time he does it. We, we know he was deeply influenced by this Old Testament prophet. And Peter here is quoting and slightly rephrasing Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 likens Jesus to a slave. Isaiah 53 is sometimes called the servant chapter or the slave chapter or the doulos chapter or the orkates chapter. In the New Testament, Jesus recognized himself as the mistreated slave in Isaiah 53. Jesus bore our sins on a tree. He got under them and carried them to the cross. He bore the penalty for them on the tree. The Father thought of our sin as belonging to Jesus. He was no arbitrary substitute. There was a real relationship between us. He carried our sins personally, not by proxy. Peter is speaking confessionally here, and I love it. He's acknowledging his own sins. He died for my sins too. By his wounds, we are healed. Don't read over quickly this phrase, his wounds. Because he had wounds. They stripped him naked. They beat him. They plucked his beard. They went through a mock trial. They spit on him. History tells us that his hands would have been affixed by ropes or, or possibly chains. And they would tie him to a whipping post with his back, his legs, and his buttocks exposed. Two soldiers, one on each side with a cat of nine tails. A long leather strap with broken pieces of glass and bone and, and maybe even metal sewn into it. They would hit him with those straps to tenderize the flesh. Like a cook would beat a piece of meat to tenderize it. The glass, the bone, and the pottery pieces would sink deep into his flesh. Not merely the outer flesh, but the deep tissue. And they would rip it back. Ripping the skin off of his body. Often, this event was so violent that a man's rib would literally come flying off of his body. This was a grisly beating. Those were wounds of punishment. By those wounds, we are healed. You say, how are we healed? We are healed first physically. We are healed physically. Some of these slaves in the local churches had been beaten. They had been mistreated horribly. When you experience the whips of your earthly master, remember the heavenly master sent his son to become a slave and be whipped by the wrath of God. The whips of slaves were horrible, but nothing compared to the whips of Christ. His whips were more than physical. They were otherworldly. Ultimately, Christ's atonement on the cross for us brings physical healing. It brings us to heaven where a new body awaits us. 
If you were to see my back, you would see scars. Not from a whip, but they kind of look like they're from a, from a whip. They're stripes. They came from a freak accident. But I remember the pain of receiving those stripes. I remember wondering if I would have them for the rest of my life. It has to be comforting to these slaves to know that when they get to heaven, they will have new glorified bodies with no scars on their backs. No scars in heaven except for the scars in Jesus' hands and feet and likely back. How are we healed? We are healed physically. Secondly, we are healed emotionally. Emotional scarring from mistreatment can be worse than physical scarring. Dear friend, in the wounds of Christ there is healing. You may experience temporary healing from some of those emotional scars on earth, but you will definitely experience total emotional healing when you see Christ. Physical healing, emotional healing, finally, spiritual healing. Your greatest need is spiritual healing. To be saved from your sins, to be saved from the wrath of God, to be saved from hell, repent of your sins and experience the spiritual healing of forgiveness. God has wounds What an incredible gospel. We would never make this up. The creator has been crushed and bruised and beaten and scarred for us. Christ is our sufferer. Christ is our substitute. Christ is our shepherd. Verse 25. For you who were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In the Old Testament, during the sacrificial system, the shepherd would raise sheep and sell many of them for sacrifices. The priest would kill the sheep on behalf of the shepherd's sins. In the temple, the sheep died for the shepherd. But at Calvary, The shepherd died for the sheep. The verb translated in verse 25, returned, is a word that refers to turning from sin. Repentance. It's referring to someone's salvation or conversion. It's aorist tense in reference to a past decisive moment in life. Stephen Davey once mentioned a man by the name of Timothy Laniac. And Timothy spent several years living among Middle Eastern shepherds. And he couldn't help but notice how desperately these sheep needed an attentive shepherd. He noticed that even among the hardy mountain breed, these sheep still faced braxy, pulpy kidney, staggers, pneumonia, pastorella, hypothermia in the winter, scab, scrapia. They push their heads through fences and get cut. They climb trees to pick at foliage and get hung up by their legs. They fall down banks. They get bitten by snakes and stung by wasps. 
They tumble into ponds and can't get out. They gorge themselves on fallen ash leaves, then roll over on their backs and swell up like balloons. They poison themselves on ragwort. They starve, freeze, and fall ill. But every affliction they face can be countered by a good shepherd. Dear sheep, you may be in danger. You may be heading for a cliff or a wolf. But just as God shepherded his people in Israel in the Old Testament, he, he will shepherd you. I read this text this week and I, it just gloriously convicted me of God's shepherding work. I want to read it to you. It's Ezekiel 34, 11. You don't have to turn there, but just let this wash over you. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my, see- my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when his sheep have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will give them their own land and I will feed them. God and the person of Christ is the guardian of his sheep. He was made a slave to save slaves. He was made a sheep to save sheep. He became a mistreated Christ to comfort and redeem mistreated Christians. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.